This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Sarah Dingle coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. Welcome to This Week. For years, hundreds of thousands of welfare recipients were pursued over debts they did not owe. From 2015 to 2019, the robo-debt scheme issued automatic debt notices which were incorrectly calculated. Victims who tried to tell authorities there'd been a mistake were rebuffed or ignored, causing deep financial distress and anguish. Some of those targeted took their own lives after they received debt notices. Now, the final report from the Robo-Debt Royal Commission has recommended some individuals should be referred for criminal and civil prosecution over the failed scheme. Commissioner Holmes has given us a report, a Royal Commission report into the Robo-Debt scandal, which I think in summary shows that the previous government and senior public servants gaslighted the nation and its citizens for four and a half years. In a three-volume, 990-page report, Royal Commissioner Catherine Holmes found there was remarkably little interest in ensuring the legality of the scheme. The Commissioner found the scheme was designed amidst a climate of populist anti-welfare rhetoric. This is extraordinary, Sarah. I've never seen anything like it in my career. Um, This is a story about the public service, uh, which created an illegal scheme and then actively colluded to cover it up. Rick Morton is a journalist at the Saturday paper. He's spent years reporting on the fallout of the failed scheme and has followed the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission found that Minister uh, Scott Morrison, who was social services portfolio at the time, misled Cabinet by failing to do his job, basically. He should have asked questions about this early advice that was given to him in a brief that said there might need to be new legislation to allow this to happen. That suddenly disappeared. And nevertheless, it was waived through Cabinet. But the reason that advice disappeared was because the public servants had taken it upon themselves to please Scott Morrison. And so they were the ones who actively colluded to perpetrate this deception. And that's just the start of the scheme. (laughs) Things get even more wild once you hit 2017 when there's this kind of swelling public criticism. And nevertheless, no questions seem to be asked about whether this thing is in fact legal. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? I mean, at one point um, in the report, the commissioner says that no one seems to have one kind of clear account or of, of everything that happened. Um, mm. There's no sort of clear through line, I guess. No, and, and to some extent that's kind of understandable because these are gargantuan departments in their own right. There's two of them. Social Services does policy in, at the time, the Department of Human Services, which is now Services Australia, does delivery. But the the reporting lines were crossed from the very beginning because it was Catherine Campbell, who was DHS, who first briefed Scott Morrison, who'd just become Social Services Minister. So she was not his secretary and he was not her minister. But that's where this idea that he wanted to focus on integrity came from. And then within weeks, she'd gone back to her people and said, what have we got? And, of course, there was this idea percolating within the depths of the department that was robo-debt, and so up it went. So the failures of the scheme and the individuals involved in its design and implementation played out publicly during the Royal Commission hearings. Is this report so far the outcome that you actually expected? 
I think it is. I think it is. I think we had a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of, we got close to the truth in a lot of these public hearings, but it required someone of Commissioner Catherine Holmes' status, the former Chief uh, Justice of the Queensland Supreme Court, to actually make a decision about whether she believed what she was being told. And crucially, um, on a key account, she says, no, I don't. So she, you know, she is the one that has now put in writing that it was Catherine Campbell who made directions as Secretary of the Department of Human Services who ordered that legal advice not be sought because she was worried about protecting her own reputation because she knew that Averaging was being used. She, Commissioner Holmes found that it was Catherine Campbell who ordered that PricewaterhouseCoopers, who had been paid a million dollars to deliver a report into this scheme, not deliver that report because she knew it was critical and, again, was protecting her own reputation. She found that Serena Wilson and Emma Kate McGurk and Paul McBride at the Department of Social Services engaged in an active um, attempt, which worked, to um, deceive the Commonwealth Ombudsman. And so, you know, I think this report, there were a few people that were worried that it wasn't going to go that far, that they were just going to say, look, we will never get the truth. But um, we got that. Now, other people were hoping that there'd be more, you know, public ventilation of what potential charges may come from this, what actions may come from this. All we know is that there are four individuals who have been referred to other law enforcement agencies like the Australian Federal Police, um, the Australian Public Service Commissioner, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, and um, I think professional boards for lawyers. Which brings us to the sealed chapter, like, Mm. you know, all good racy publications, there is a sealed chapter in this report that makes recommendations for civil and criminal prosecutions. We don't know who it relates to, but do we know when we might find out? Look, it really depends on those agencies and when they decide what to do with these referrals. There's no obligation for them to follow it up. I suspect they will, given that it has the imprimatur of the Royal Commission. And it just, it's how long is a piece of string? I think that's what really, I mean, it's been such, I mean, this scheme began in 2014. It's been almost a decade already for people to wait for some form of justice. And I think the truth is some form of justice, but there are people who want more, and that's going to take another couple of years at least, I think. Well, let's go to what we do know. The report states that Scott Morrison, who was Social Services Minister at the time RoboDebt was implemented, allowed Cabinet to be misled, as you referred to, because he didn't ask the questions, the really important questions about whether this scheme was in fact legal. What does this mean for Scott Morrison going forward? So there's an interesting question now about misleading cabinet is a pretty serious behaviour, whether you allow it or plan it. And so I think he's in a spot of bother. The particulars of that, who knows how that pans out, but I don't think it was the outcome that Scott Morrison was hoping for. I mean, his evidence was a masterclass, I think, in um, circuitous reasoning. Um, And at one point he said, can I just take you back to 1984? And the commissioner said, please don't. Um, Because, you know, he was trying to argue that there'd been this longstanding practice of income averaging. He'd been briefed about that. And the commission said that's just not believable because there wasn't (laughs) a longstanding practice. And, and, And it was this idea that he thought, They were using averaging when everyone else who was kind of in the gun was saying, oh, no, 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 we had no idea that averaging was used because that was the illegal part, right? So he knows that. He admits to it on the stand and then tries to also say, well, I didn't, you know, I had this original brief that said legislative change would be required 
DSS advised that. That's my department. And suddenly I get a new policy proposal that says, oh, everything's fine, but nothing about the policy changes. Otherwise, the numbers are still the same. The savings are still the same. Everything else is still the same, but that key phrase disappears and he doesn't think to ask his own department, hey, whatever happened to that idea that you needed to change the legislation? Would you mind telling me about that? He didn't do any of those things. And that's that's a serious abrogation of his duty. When the Royal Commission was launched, the key argument was that it was it was necessary to do this so that we could prevent something like this ever happening again. Mm. Have we now done enough to prevent something like this ever happening again? No, it, it really only just starts now. <laughs> um, you know, there are, I mean, there, there's a bigger problem here behind the scenes, which is the kind of emaciation of the public service over many decades now and this idea that frank and fearless advice is no longer provided. In fact, there's a point in here where the commissioner says that in the original brief to Scott Morrison, there was frank and fearless advice. They said, hey, look, you can do this, but you're going to need to change the legislation. It's not going to be easy. He doesn't want to do any of those things. In fact, he talks openly about the fact that he wants to do compliance things in welfare that don't require legislative change. And rather than continue the frank and fearless advice, the public servants change the advice to suit the demands of their minister. Now, Scott Morrison didn't ask them to to lie from what we can tell, but they took it upon themselves to be like, well, this is what he wants. I guess we need to find a way to do it, and to do it, they just changed the language. And so there's this big story about not just culture. Culture is not going to cut it. This is a structural reform that's needed here, and key above to all of this, I think, is transparency, which sounds like a kind of a silly loser word to use almost um, in these days. No. It's like <laughs> if, if you hear people talk about transparency, like, oh, my God. But, like, genuinely, RoboDebt survived as long as it did because people were able to hide stuff, stuff that ordinarily should have been released under freedom of information laws, through Senate inquiries, through the ordinary course of providing information to the Commonwealth Ombudsman. And, you know, that's... That's the stuff that needs to change. And that's going to be really hard for people in power to actually accept that, let alone act on it. Because who wants to be the government that says, actually, come and have a look at our dirty laundry? Because annoying people like me start writing stories about it. Rick Morton is an investigative journalist with The Saturday Paper. The fallout from the PwC tax leak scandal is not slowing down. Twelve partners in total, including the firm's former chief executive, have now been sacked. In the wake of revelations, the firm distributed confidential government information about tax laws to corporate clients. Eight of those partners gone this week. PwC has also officially sold off its government consulting arm, creating a new company, Sign Advisory, in the hope of clearing up any murkiness between its government and corporate interests. And ultimately what we actually think is that there are 1,750 jobs. It's not really the Australian way to punish the innocent. The work that they do is really important for Australia. And we actually don't think it's actually in in the interest of Australia for this business to fail. The ongoing saga has placed scrutiny on the conduct of big professional service firms who donate millions to the major political parties while competing for government contracts. Conflict of interest is what we're seeing here um, at multiple levels. Dr Ainsley Elbra is a researcher at the University of Sydney. She's written extensively about corporate power and the big four consulting firms. 
my collaborators and co-authors and myself have written, you know, before this that we suspected and we have all cause to believe that the very business model and the structure of the firm is that there is money to be made and certainly um, a growing part of their business is, is advising multinationals on how to minimise their tax obligations globally, but, you know, to Australia as well. At the same time, different partners are advising governments on how to structure corporate tax law, but also, as we saw in the PwC case, bringing information from those discussions back to the organisation. Reuters has reported that one of the companies that was allegedly given some confidential, supposedly confidential advice was Google. These are allegations only at this stage, but that is that is a substantial company, isn't it? It is. And it, it's if that turns out to be correct, is not at all surprising. So we would expect the sorts of companies that could make use of this information are always going to be multinational in nature, with large global footprints, and increasingly in the digital services space. So you know, as we say at this stage, it's just an allegation, but it's, it's a wholly unsurprising one at that. Well, PwC, effective from the 1st of July, has also offloaded its government consulting arm, to a private equity firm, Allegro Funds, for one single dollar. Allegro uh, says this will become a new public sector consulting company called Sign Advisory. I spoke with Adrian Loder of Allegro Funds earlier this week in his first ever radio interview, and he had a couple of points to make. First of all, he was very big on stressing the ASX standards that sign advisory would now have to adhere to, which PwC did not because it's not publicly listed. What do those standards bring? Well, look, with any luck, they bring stronger focus on corporate governance. And, you know, this work used to be done previously by public servants who, uh, you know, had security clearance and had signed uh, to a certain code of conduct once this moved into these consultancy firms where, as we, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the business structure is opaque, they're not listed on the ASX. The partnerships are very deeply private and intertwined and we don't know much about the corporate governance structure of these firms. If sign is listed on the ASX, well, then, of course, it has to, as you mentioned, abide by clearer corporate governance rules. But I think the real key here, if sign is only a government consultancy business, then we are minimising the conflict of interest. In fact, this has actually been one of the recommendations that has been around for a long time, that this part of the business model for the professional services firms should not be housed in the same place as the tax advisory business. So in some ways, this is a step towards solving this problem, albeit one that was forced upon PwC after you know lengthy uh, scrutiny over this particular case. Well, Adrian Loder was also keen to stress that this will be a public sector consulting firm only, only for government contracts. And he said that they have hired former federal court judge Andrew Greenwood to vet the employees who come across from PwC. He didn't get into an enormous amount of detail about just how how deep they're going to go. But what would you expect as part of that vetting process? What will they be going through? Well, look, as you say, uh, an ASX-listed company will have different levels of corporate governance, more public disclosure um, around their activities. Uh, You know, if it's wholly focused on hopefully federal and state, but we still don't know much about what happens at the state government level in relation to the professional services firms. But, you know, if it is focused on these only, then the vetting process really is more than about standard corporate governance structures such as you have around insider trading and, and other conflicts that exist in the wider financial sector. 
Is all of this for the newly created sign, you know, um, public sector contracts only, a formal federal court judge in-house and on the board vetting employees who come across, across from PwC, is all of that good enough to declare a fresh start for this entity? Uh there will time will tell, I suppose. So there are a number of inquiries that may or may not take place. There is an internal inquiry. Most people don't have a great deal of hope that much will come out of the internal inquiry. But if there is further external scrutiny on PwC, whether it be through uh, the Senate or whether it be through the newly formed National Anti-Corruption Commission, we may find more. We may uncover more. What surprises me is, I guess, the lack of focus on the remaining three professional services firms who haven't spun out their government consultancy business and remain structured uh, the way that I've, I've mentioned, where you have this tax advisory and consultancy operating side by side within the one business. So we may possibly optimistically have solved the problem at one of these consultancy firms, but it's one of, of many. The other three are, of course, Deloitte, EY and KPMG. KPMG came out on the front foot recently saying they had launched their own internal review to address concerns about potential conflicts of interest. For instance, they have federal government contracts to conduct audits of aged care facilities, but a separate division within KPMG charges providers for advice on audits and accreditation. But Deloitte, EY, are they doing anything at all about having a look at their own operations? And is an internal review by each of the big three sufficient now that we know what has happened at PwC? You would hope they would be taking this time, well, the focus is on PwC, to do a very thorough internal review. Uh, But I come back to the same point. I mean, these businesses are legally allowed to donate to political parties that then, when in government, provide contracts to them. So, you know, there's a conflict of interest there at the most basic instrumental level. You know, and the structure of the businesses mean that even though they might be housed in separate divisions, there are conflicting goals within the organisation. Um, and until that is really dealt with, until the political donations are dealt with, and probably really until bureaucracy and the public service is capable of, of actually advising government internally rather than reaching out to consultants for tax advice or whether, as you say, advice about health policy or, or managing healthcare institutions, this conflict will remain. And so I think really it, it needs to be dealt with at a much bigger level than an internal review. But as I say, if if I was running one of those organisations, I'd be taking this time now while we're not in the spotlight to, um, to thoroughly look over what's going on. Well, there's also a Senate inquiry underway uh, into how to ensure the integrity of these consulting firms. A former KPMG partner has made a submission calling for a Royal Commission into this sector. Do you think that's what is necessary to unravel all this? Yeah, I mean, look, there's there has been talk for some time that one of the, the clearest solutions, and there's been some suggestions in the US that it might come out of antitrust regulation or antitrust law in Australia, perhaps competition law, to, to break these companies up. And it will take some sort of top-down direction, really, or in the case of PwC at the moment, some very, very intense scrutiny to encourage or to force these big four professional services firms to unravel some of the um, mergers and acquisitions that they themselves have undertaken over the past 30 years or so that have made them into such broad organisations. And it probably does need to be a global discussion as well. I mean, these are not Australian companies, they're global operators with the same business model operating throughout the world. Do we need to ban political donations from these kinds of firms? I think so. Look, you know, we we don't accept that uh, developers can make political donations to state or local governments. Uh, I can't see how it's 
it's not a clear conflict of interest for uh, these professional services firms and other consultancy firms to be able to donate to both sides of, of politics and then when contracts are awarded, you know, be the recipient of, of funding. Dr Ainsley Elbra is an expert in corporate power and tax avoidance at the University of Sydney. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! If you spend any time at all online, you've surely come across the marketing behemoth that is the new Barbie movie. I thought I might stay over tonight. Why? Because we're girlfriend boyfriend. Photos of the film star Margot Robbie dressed head to toe in hot pink, looking exactly like the iconic doll, have gone viral. Fans can even stay in the Malibu Dreamhouse, a replica of Barbie's classic residence you might have played with as a child. It's been purpose-built to promote the film. You've heard about Barbie's dream house, but did you know you can actually <laughs> stay there, people? A real-life Barbie now. dream house has popped up. But a little bit of shine has worn off ahead of its release, with Vietnam announcing it's going to ban the film over what it says is an offending image. The problem is there's a scene in the film that depicts the nine-dash line, which represents China's claim over part of the South China Sea. Vietnam is one of a number of countries in the region that contest China's claim. Authorities in the Philippines are now also considering banning the film's release. Yeah, it's so strange, right? Like, that was not going to be the diplomatic crisis that we all thought was going to happen in 2023. (laughs) And yet, this is exactly what's happened. Wen Lei Ma is a journalist and a TV and film critic. It is a very small detail in a background of a fleeting scene where there's a very crudely drawn map of the world. Uh, Let's just say it's definitely not to scale. Uh, It's not accurate in a general sense because Asia is not the shape that it is on the map, (laughs) nor is Africa. Um, But there is this line, this very sensitive diplomatic line, which kind of carves out what is, I guess, considered ownership in the South China Sea. And uh, there's a lot of sensitivities around it, around what China has has claimed for what its neighbours in Asia disputes, including Vietnam, including the Philippines. Um, and it's caused a fracas where Vietnam has said, we are not allowing for the release of this movie in our country because of this fleeting map. So, uh, I mean, it seems wildly speculative to dream up a conspiracy involving the Barbie movie. But on the other hand, the Nine Dash line, like, it is so controversial Is there any way this was some sort of deliberate placement to perhaps curry favour with the Chinese market for this movie? There's been no evidence that this is the case, um, but we do love to speculate and certainly some quarters of the internet have suggested such a thing. I mean, Hollywood studios do have a history of sort of curtailing to China because it's such a big movie market. Uh, It was on its way to overtake the US and that's actually America and Canada combined as the biggest box office in the world. And I think it did during the first or second year of COVID and then it sort of fell back again. Um, But, you know, in the past where you've had things like um, scenes getting cut out, references getting changed, there was a movie a few years, about 10 years ago, where the villain I think was originally China and then they changed it in post-production to North Korea. Korea because it was going to get banned. Um, So there are a lot of sensitivities around this, but the Chinese box office and the Chinese film industry has changed a lot in the last couple of years where in China itself, a lot of big blockbusters
purchases are being made that are making hundreds of millions of dollars in the opening weekend. And they're much less reliant on imported products to sort of get people to the box office. So it doesn't have the same sort of resonance as it used to. The Fast and the Furious are still massive, you know, it's still a big franchise in China. But other Hollywood movies that have been released there of late have actually kind of flattened out things like The Little Mermaid or any of the Marvel movies. They've not done anywhere near as well as they used to. Mm, That's so interesting. Well, let's talk about another market, the UAE. Just last month, the new Spider-Man movie, you know, version number 248, um, was blocked from release in the UAE because it didn't pass local censorship laws. Would the public there care? Would they react much in the same way that the Chinese market seems to react? They have their own content or does it make more of an impact? The, the UAE and the different countries within it are is a smaller market to American studios. And in the recent months, in the past two years, really, there have been a few instances where movies have not been released, have not been cleared for release in, like, say, Kuwait or um, other countries around there because of content they deem that the censors in those countries deem offensive or not appropriate for the wider audience. They've mostly been around LGBTQI characters or depictions of LGBTQI relationships. Uh, It is obviously a very traditional conservative country. There's still a lot of laws around LGBTQI rights um, or not rights, as it were. And, uh, you know, recently there have been a couple of Marvel movies that didn't get cleared for uh, release, including Eternals, which had uh, a a lead, one of the lead characters is a gay character and there was the overt depiction of a gay relationship and that movie didn't get released in many of those countries. And um, Angelina Jolie, one of the stars of Eternals, you know, came out and spoke out about how it's not right that these censors have blocked these movies from being released. But, you know, the internet is a global thing and audiences and fans are pretty crafty and there are many ways for them to get around these official blocks in cinemas and see them online at one point or another. So... You can try as much as you can as a government to control what your citizens watch, but it's, pro- it's you know, a futile battle really. <laughs> yeah. Well, another approach is to just kind of back away from the whole thing. Some big blockbuster movies now are just sort of not really being specific about where villains are from. It's like they're bad, they're from this place, let's just make it look sort of generically bad, but we're not actually going to come out and say that this is, you know, for instance, a nuclear weapons facility in, insert country name here. Is there an awareness now that it's just, let's just not alienate anyone uh, because there will be market implications at some point? Yeah, I think so. I mean, famously, Top Gun Maverick had an entire, you know, the entire uh, plotline around this villain in a country that may or may not, in my view, be Russia. <laughs> um, they never said it. Um, and I think, well, at least when Ma- Maverick was made, there was no sanctions against doing any sort of business between American companies and within Russia, and now there is. Um, there, it does seem to be a lot of reticence to make those particular claims because it's 
A, you are potentially cutting off an entire market with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of potential audiences, but you're also potentially offending diaspora audiences in Western markets, in other countries where these movies are being released, where they, you know, are open to that sort of criticism. And it's not 20 or 30 years ago. The internet is a global force and you just sometimes can't pick exactly what is going to offend whom and how loud and wide that criticism goes. Mm. Now, I have to ask finally about this Barbie movie. I mean, the (laughs) the promotion, the marketing, it is off the hook. It is insane. There's kind of a two-track approach though. There's like a real desire for this movie to be seen as inclusive. They've got like Asian Ken and, you know, Asian Barbie and stuff like that. But it's very much Margot Robbie front and centre. Is this a real play for diversity in a movie about Barbie or is it tokenism? I hope it's not tokenistic. Um, From what we've seen of it so far in a lot of the marketing and the trailers that has already come out, there does seem to be this effort at being a bit more inclusive. You know, it's been a few decades since I've played with a Barbie or engaged with the whole Barbie world. So when I kind of looked into it a little bit when the movie was coming out, I was surprised to find out that Barbie had as a company, Mattel as a company had kind of created all these other versions and variations of Barbies to be more inclusive in both body types and um, ethnicities and, you know, what they stand for, whether it's astronaut Barbie or Dr. Barbie or just as Margot Robbie's character is seen, a stereotypical Barbie. I mean, she is still front and centre and it is still her story. So I think there is some tension and conflict in that discussion. But I think, you know, with Greta Gerwig, who's the filmmaker uh, who directed and co-wrote the film, like she's probably a little more sensitive sensitive to that sort of criticism because in the past, her movies, which both of which I love immensely, including Lady Bird and Mm. uh, Little Women, have also come under those same sort of critiques that they were very white and they weren't super inclusive. So I think she would make, I believe, to be like a genuine concerted effort to to make it something for everyone and because it is you know a multinational toy company they want to sell a lot of toys which means they don't want to cut out most of the population when leymar is a journalist and a tv and film critic and that's the episode for this week subscribe by searching for this week podcast it's produced by bridget fitzgerald flint duxfield anna john and me sarah dingle i'll be with you for the next few weeks catch you next time You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.